The reading today comes from the third chapter of the book of Daniel. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth six cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And the herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning, fiery furnace." There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true? O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury. And the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated. And he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their other garments. And they were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace because the king's order was urgent 
and the furnace overheated. The flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning, fiery furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, True, O king. He answered and said, But I see four men unbound, walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt, and the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning fiery furnace. He declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire, and the satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not had any power over the bodies of those men. The hair of their heads was not singed, their cloaks were not harmed, and no smell of fire had come upon them. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants, who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I make a decree. Any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb and their houses laid in ruin. For there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. The word of the Lord. That's a great story. And so I had to have Mike read the entirety of chapter 3. Um, because it is so good. And, And it's the first Sunday of Advent, as I've said several times. And so it's the Sunday where we lights this candle of hope, and I said, you know, in my children's message, having hope is about looking in the right direction towards a promise, looking forward in expectation. And this is a time of year when we think, you know, it's filled with people having many things that they're looking forward to. Going to see family that you maybe get to see once a year, or having family come visit you. Keeping up Christmas traditions like Watching the greatest Christmas movie of all time, Die Hard. Uh, It is a Christmas movie. Uh, Or uh, picking out your Christmas tree, decorating the Christmas tree, baking Christmas cookies. For many of us this time of year, there are so many things that we have to look forward to. But some of us are just looking forward to getting through the next month and the new year. That it's cold and dark outside, and this is a time of year that is, yes, filled with memories, but not every one of them is sweet. And not everything in our life right now fills us with good tidings of comfort and joy. So hope is about looking forward, but when you have a a biblically shaped imagination, you realize that there's another dimension of hope. Hope isn't just about, you know, looking forward and forgetting the past hope in scripture is much richer than that hope is is something like remembering forward remembering god's faithfulness in the past as a means of anticipating what god is going to do in the future hope is remembering forward looking toward the future through the lenses lenses of what god has already done in the past it's it's just like celebrating christmas 
We look forward to it each year by remembering, celebrating, embracing, and adapting the traditions of the past that have been handed down to us. And in that way, we make it new each and every year. So the season of Advent is particularly about remembering forward. It's about not skipping ahead to Christmas. It's about awaiting. Awaiting the arrival of Jesus Christ. And one of the best ways to remember forward is to wait and to hope and expect. And our scripture comes from the book of Daniel. And it's one of the most beloved Bible stories of all time, especially if you're a small child. You know, this is one of those great Sunday school classics, greatest hits, right up there with Daniel and the lion's den. Or maybe you hear the story Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and you think of the Beastie Boys album, Paul's Boutique, with the great song, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. It's just three MCs, and we're on the go. Uh, Sorry, that's just what I I listen to a lot of Beastie Boys in my day. So, but anyways, it's a beloved story. And and in many ways, it's a farcical story. Uh, You know, it's very repetitive. You have this long list of all these, you know, highfalutin officials who are called together, and this absurd symphony gets together, and whenever they start playing, they're supposed to bow down. But it's a story about remaining faithful. In the midst of pressure and persecution to do otherwise. And the historical context for the events in the book of Daniel, it's the beginning of the Babylonian exile. And this is uh, when you're talking about really the formative events for God's people. The Babylonian exile is right up there. It was a national and theological crisis. This pagan empire came in and they did the unthinkable. They, They captured Jerusalem. And they destroyed the temple, and they sent the best and the brightest off into exile. And so the Jewish people would thought they lived in the promised land, that the temple was, you know, guaranteed God's safety and protection for, for them and their city. It was all called into question. And the best people were forced to serve in the government of, of the Babylonians. And so the pressing question in Daniel is, how do you remain faithful in the midst of a culture and a world that is hostile to your faith. And the telling of the stories recorded in the book of Daniel, the the, the recording, the writing down of these stories, is itself part of an act of remembering forward. Because the best evidence we have of when these were written down and reached their final form was that these stories were written down in in the second century B.C., sometime in the middle part of that, about 400 years after the events in Daniel themselves occurred. And so this was a time after the Jewish people had returned from their exile. And they were back in, in the promised land and they had started to rebuild the temple, but they were again living under brutal oppression. A wicked king from the lineage of the conquests of Alexander the Great, right? He who looked out at the world and wept because there were no more lands left to conquer. And and he had left this empire that had cracked into various pieces. And one of them was ruled by this wicked man named Antiochus IV Epiphanes. And he was a brutal man, brutally persecuting the Jewish people. And it was his brutal reign, actually, that sparked the Jewish revolt that led to Hanukkah, the the festival of Hanukkah. And so under Antiochus' reign, it was illegal... For parents to circumcise their sons, it was illegal to keep the Sabbath, and it was illegal to own a Torah, a Bible. 
So if you were a Jewish person, you couldn't practice the, the circumcision. That's the sign of the covenant. You couldn't keep the Sabbath, which was the distinctive practice that marked out your life and your worship each and every week. And you couldn't have scripture. You, you couldn't possess the very word of God. And to add outrage to these insults, Antiochus had erected an altar to Zeus in the Jerusalem temple and had sacrificed a pig, a non-kosher animal, on the altar. I mean, he was really trying to rub their faces in the fact that he was in charge. And so when you are the people of God living in such a situation, you wonder, how can I remain faithful when everything around me is telling me to give in? And so when you hear that, you can understand why at this time they would especially treasure the stories of Daniel and his compatriots who centuries before them had faced the same kind of trials and hadn't caved or compromised. And actually, one of the great divides during this time, during the reign of Antiochus, was between the Jewish people who were more willing to accommodate and go along with the reforms that Antiochus was bringing and those who stood against him. Right? And, and, and everything's telling you, go with the guys who are going to get along with Antiochus. But they looked at Daniel, and they looked at Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and they had seen people who had been tested and tried. And hadn't caved or compromised. They had faced the fires of persecution and proved themselves faithful. So remembering forward enabled them to hope. And enabled them to keep the faith in the face of immense cultural and circumstantial pressure to do otherwise. So there's four things we're going to look at in the passage this morning. And the first is, is the cultural pressure to conform. And the second thing is the circumstantial pressure to compromise. And third, what does it mean to be faithful? And lastly, who is this mysterious fourth man? So cultural pressure, circumstantial pressure, how to be faithful, the fourth man. And just as a means of preface, I want to say at the outset that I don't want to give the impression that I think the situation of Christians in America or in the West is anything akin to the Jews in Babylon. We, thank God, are not faced with the life and death choice about remaining faithful to God or, or caving to cultural pressure. But if, if you read someone like uh, the Canadian philosopher Charles Taylor, I don't know why you would have done that, but Charles Taylor is a really, really, really um, incisive commentator on sort of the, the cultural situation in the West. And he wrote this really thick book. It's a great doorstop called uh, A Secular Age, but it, it is full of, of insights. And he realized that all of us living in the West live, we used to live under a sacred canopy, and that's gone. And so we all live in a cultural context where our predominant suppositions, religious or irreligious, they're all secular, as he says. Even Christian belief itself is articulated in its relationship to the secular. And it's, it's a dense and complicated work. And I'm still slogging through it myself. But the point for all of us is that we're all going to be faced with situations where we are forced to choose between being faithful or caving and compromising, to to bowing our knee to a cultural idol or remaining faithful to God. And the three great idols of our age, probably the three great idols of every age, are the gods, the false idols of power, money, and sex. So with all that preface, let's get to the first point I want to make, that where we see the cultural pressure to conform. 
And so the setting for the passage is that the Babylonian emperor Nebuchadnezzar has decided to build himself a statue. It seems like it's of himself, but he's built it out somewhere in the flat part of his empire. And, and the statue's dimensions are almost comical. It's, it's 10 feet wide and 90 feet tall. So if you think going out in some flat space, it's just this toothpick sticking up out there. And he covers it in gold. And it doesn't take much of an imagination to see that whatever is going on with this image is it is an unholy combination of the gods of sex, money, and power all in one place, in one edifice. And Nebuchadnezzar's uh, self-tribute with this image, it would have provided rich and, and easy fodder for, you know, Dr. Freud. But he builds this monument to his power and to his prowess and to his wealth. And he calls out all the important people. And he tells them that they're going to worship this. They're going to bow down to this at the sound of this ridiculous symphony. And so his message is simple. I am like a God here on earth. And I command all of you to worship me as such. He makes of himself and of his rule an idol. And so the cultural pressure on Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to apostatize, to betray their faith at this moment is immense. To place a mere human being and a mere statue above their loyalty to God. To break the first commandment. And so the first aspect of this cultural pressure that, that, that goes unspoken, and it's easy to miss. It, it's so subtle, but it comes from the fact that they weren't born Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Those were the names that were given to them once they were taken into exile. Originally, when they had been born, they were named Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Good Jewish names for good Jewish boys. Hananiah means God is gracious. And Mishael means who is like God. And Azariah means the Lord helps him. But when they were taken into captivity, those names were erased and they were given new names that made no mention of the God of Israel. Shadrach means command of Aku. Aku is the Babylonian moon god. And Meshach means who is like Aku. And Abednego means servant of Nebo, the Babylonian god of wisdom. So we see from the outset, their very names were changed. And the message to them was clear. You are no longer in Israel. And you're no longer to see the world the way you saw it before or, or, or think that your god is in charge anymore. Our gods are. And so you will see the world how we see it. You will worship how we worship. You will obey our commands. You belong to Babylon. And our gods are your gods. So that's one aspect of the cultural pressure they face. To let the dominant culture name and label you and label how you're supposed to see the world. And what matters most. And the other aspect of cultural pressure is just the total conformity of the crowd to the command of Nebuchadnezzar. In verse 7 it says, Therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the hornpipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. 
So twice in one verse, at the sound of the instruments, it says all the people, all the people, without exception, fell down and worshipped the golden image. Literally, everyone was doing it. And conformity is so powerful because one of our greatest desires as human beings is to fit in. Right? LeBron James, when the uh, Cavaliers were struggling to build their chemistry in, in their most recent iteration and win a championship, you know, uh, and Kevin Love was sort of like the black sheep of the team, he posted this thing on Instagram and he said, you know, fit in, don't fit out. And it was this powerful message like, you need to belong to this team if we're going to be successful. And you might have been an all-star and, you know, in Minnesota, you were, you were the best but this is my team, and you fit in here. You don't fit out. And Kevin Love, if you watch him play, he's not the same anymore. He's got to fit in, not fit out. And if you've ever been at a performance, usually it's a kid's performance, and then there's a standing ovation at the end, and you're just not, if it's not your own kids, you're just not feeling like standing up and giving a standing ovation. Like, it was good. Yeah, clap. I will clap. But everyone stands and gives the ovation. And eventually, you will cave to the pressure of the crowd because you don't want to be that jerk. Who doesn't stand up and clap? That's how great the pressure is, the power is to conform. Even nonconformists, right? Find other people to not conform with in exactly the same way. Conformity to cultural norms and cultural currents and cultural pressures. One of the greatest threats, greatest challenges to living as a faithful Christian in every age. Right? We want to think when we're faced with pressure, we'd be brave. Right? We, we would stand up. We'd buck the system. But the truth is, unless you're practiced in being faithful, in swimming against the stream, you will almost certainly bow along with the crowds to whatever idol you're commanded to bow before. You know, we celebrate Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and, and he was a leader in the confessing church in Germany under the Nazi regime. We say, I, I, would, have been a, I would have been like him. But the truth is, only one-sixth of the German pastors had anything to do with the confessing church. Just as many pastors were a part of the, the German Christian movement, the so-called German Christian movement, who wedded Nazi ideology and Christian Theology. And the vast majority, you know, the other four, six, we're in the mushy middle. The pressure to conform to the spirit of the age is so, so powerful. That's the cultural pressure on Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to, to break the first commandment, to bow down and worship as God, the false gods of Babylon, of money, of power, of sex. But beyond the, the broader cultural pressure to conform, there's the second thing we're going to look at. And, that, and that's the very specific circumstantial pressure they face to compromise. And it wasn't just that they you know, felt this pressure to go along with the crowd. There were very specific consequences if they didn't do what Nebuchadnezzar had commanded them to do. He decreed that whoever didn't bow down and worship the statue would be immediately thrown into the burning, fiery furnace. Think of you know, going to punch pizza and being told if you didn't bow down, they were going to throw you in that thing. Except much hotter. You go, I probably don't want to do that. 
And so when he heard that these three Jews were the only ones who had disobeyed his order, Nebuchadnezzar said, bring them to me. And I'm hauled before his face. And he makes the threat to their face. And he says, when you hear that music and you bow down, well, <laughs> we don't have a problem. We're good. But you hear that music and you don't, there's the furnace. And he ends with this kicker. He says, and it's a rhetorical question, clearly. And who is the God who can deliver you from my hands? In essence, with his threat, he's saying, guys, you're in Babylon. And just so we're clear, I'm God. Because life and death, your fate, they're in my hands. And so in the face of such incredible circumstantial pressure, we could easily understand Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego cracking of coming up with a reason why it was okay for them to listen and obey King Nebuchadnezzar. Right? It's easy to be faithful and brave in theory, so much harder in practice. Especially when something that's of great value to you, like your life, but in other circumstances, like your job or your reputation or your career or a friendship is on the line. Human beings, we are masters at coming up with reasons why it's okay to compromise yourself and your beliefs when you're under pressure. Even pressure that is so much less than having anything to do with your life. Right? When it comes to cultural pressure and caving to that and compromising versus standing strong for your supposed beliefs, Many people, we're just looking for an excuse to cave. Even when the stakes are incredibly low. I just look at the unfolding sexual misconduct scandal. It's a real education, I think, for us as a, as a people. And we look at what are we willing to compromise for in the name of some greater cause, right? Our junior senator from Minnesota, he appears to be a serial groper of women. A creep. But, you know, should you ask him to resign because that, that might hurt the resistance? And a uh, fellow down in Alabama, don't get me started on him, but I keep reading justifications of why it's okay to vote for someone who's been very credibly accused of assaulting teenagers because he will be a, a vote for conservative values in the United States Senate. And that is more important than your principles. Right? Standing on principle and losing a seat in the halls of power, that's for suckers who want to get thrown in the furnace. Better to compromise yourself and your beliefs and your values and your principles so you can hang on to power and fight for another day. And think about how much more good you know, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego would have been able to do for the Jewish people if they had made sure to stay alive. Right there leaders in, a, in an empire, and they represent a tiny religious minority who are being persecuted. And if they're gone, someone else and someone worse is going to take their place, and who knows what they're going to do to God's people. You know what? It's okay if you bow down just this once. Everything about the circumstantial pressure says compromise, cave. Just this once. The thing about compromising yourself, though, is it, it, it gets easier with practice. In preparation for this sermon, I watched a film uh, that came out just about a year ago uh, called Silence. 
And it was directed by Martin Scorsese. And it's set in 17th century Japan, and it's loosely based on historical events. And it concerns these two Jesuit missionaries. They're Portuguese, and they hear word of their, their superior father who had been a missionary to Japan. They hear reports that he had apostatized. He had denounced Christianity. And so they go to see if these reports are true. If their beloved father, Ferreira, had indeed denied Christ and the faith. And he had done it in the face of persecution in order to save the lives of Japanese Christians. And I have to say that the movie is, it's brutal. It's a, it's a torture fest. It was not pleasant to watch. But basically during this, this time in the, in the 17th century, several tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of Japanese had become Christian following contact with the West. And, and the Japanese empire had cracked down on this. And one of the ways they did it was they made Japanese Christians renounce their faith and prove that they weren't Christians by they place an image of Christ on the ground and have them step on it with their foot as an act of apostasy. And they were, it was under the threat of torture and, and death. And they found that one of the most powerful tools, though, to stop Christianity was to get the European priests themselves, the missionaries, to renounce their faith. Because if your leader does it, of course, you know, you kill the head and the body will die. And so they torture these Japanese Christians in front of the priests to get them to apostatize and to end the suffering of their flock. And the climax of the movie comes when the last priest in Japan is faced with this choice. Will he step on this image of Christ? And should he step on it? Should he renounce his faith in order to end their suffering? It's one thing to die for your own faith and suffering. It's another thing to impose that suffering on others. And I'm not going to, I'm not going to give it away. But I will say that in, in reading this scripture in, in conversation and thinking about that movie, that there's never this sense that when you compromise your core beliefs and who you are, even towards some supposed greater good, that, that never ends well. Good things don't come from that. There's never salutary results. It, it's better to die on your feet or, than to live on your knees. Better to stand on principle than, than die the death of a thousand compromises. And so the question then we're faced with, if, if we're not going to conform or compromise or cave but remain faithful, how do we do that and what does it look like? And to that we turn to the third thing we're going to look at, the response of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to Nebuchadnezzar's threats. Their answer to his question, and who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? And their response to Nebuchadnezzar is brilliant. The first thing they say is, Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. Because the shortest, truest thing you can say when, when, when you're forced, faced with a choice to compromise is you don't have to justify being faithful. There's no answer needed, no justification or explanation needed to anyone. If you know what God wants you to do, but you're not sure how to, you're going to explain it, don't worry. You don't have to. Just do it. But what they say next, we need to unpack so they continue. They say, we don't have to answer you, but if this be so, if you are going to throw us in the burning, fiery furnace, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. So three parts of this answer, what it teaches us about what it means to be, dimensions of being faithful. So first, 
they acknowledge the power of God. They say, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. So Nebuchadnezzar had asked, who's the God who's going to do this? He thought it was a rhetorical question. They had an actual answer. And so when faced with the cultural and circumstantial pressure to conform and compromise, we've got to trust in the power of God to deliver us from the false power of idols. The question is, who can do the impossible? The answer is God. So faithfulness starts with trusting in the power of God. But it doesn't stop there, because if it did, this would be like a Sunday school answer. And we know that, okay, we know the end of the story. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they get out of the furnace, but there's a lot of people who don't. A lot of other faithful people have not experienced such a miracle. And so this is where the second part of their answer is so helpful when we think about what does it mean to be faithful. So trust in the power of God. But next they start, our God, you know, they say, so our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. And then they continue, but if not. But if not. And so their faithfulness is not contingent upon God performing a miracle. They trust in the power of God, but beyond that, they respect the freedom of God. They don't need a miracle. God is enough for them, whether or not they perish in the fire. Right? The real miracle isn't that they're rescued to the frame, from the flames. The real miracle is that they don't bow down and worship this image. No matter what. So being faithful means trusting in the power of God. It means respecting the freedom of God. And the last thing that they do is they cling to the truth of God. They say, we won't bow down and worship this image you have set up. They name it for what it is. Something he made. They can't worship as God something that has been set up with human hands. And so being faithful means holding on to what we know is true. Because the truth, which is so much under assault, is what will set us free. And when he hears this, Nebuchadnezzar is so enraged, right? He has the furnace heat up even hotter, seven times beyond its normal temperature. And, and the three mighty men who, who go to throw them in the furnace, it's so hot that they die. And Nebuchadnezzar, then he looks in the furnace, this gruesome, grisly scene he expects to see of these three Jewish men dying in the flames. And, and, and he sees not their death and their brutal end, but it's not even three men, it's four And he had tied them up and they're walking around unbound. And he says that the last of them has the appearance of a son of the gods. And so this mysterious fourth man, this is the last thing we're going to look at. So within its context, saying, you know, he had appearance like the son of the gods. It means something like an angelic being or, or something like that. But as Christian readers, of course, it's impossible not to read this and see this as a a reference, a veiled reference to Christ as the fourth man in the flames. And the theme of our whole Advent series, of all the scriptures we're going to read over the next few weeks, is, is leading up to the Gospel of John, and it's this idea of Jesus as the word of life, which is what John calls Jesus. And it's seeing that this word of life shows up in places where we wouldn't expect it and anticipate it, in desperate and hopeless places like the flames. Flames where we're on trial, we're being tested, we're under pressure to conform and compromise what we believe and hold to. And when we're faced with that, what we see with this fourth man is that Jesus doesn't keep us from the fire. Instead, he meets us in the flames. 
Christ did not keep them out of the furnace, but he found them in it. The fourth man always finds his people. And we know that Jesus has been through the fire. He's been tested. He's been judged. He's been persecuted. He's faced the temptation to conform and compromise. But he passed through the flames and came out pure in order to do the same for us. And so when we're in the fire, we're in, when we're in that place of great pressure and testing, we can cry out to Jesus and he will find us right where we are. There's a story that I read in one of the commentaries I read this week when I was studying for this sermon that I just wanted to share with you that I think is a beautiful illustration of of faithfulness. It's very short. And it came from Soviet Russia. And If you know anything about religion in the Soviet Union, it was very tightly restricted and controlled. Thousands of churches were closed. Seminaries shut down. Monasteries closed. And it was was closely monitored and persecuted. And all all religious activity was under the, the eyes of the KGB. And so there's one story of a KGB agent. He went into a church, and he saw this old woman, wrinkled face, and she was before this icon of Christ on the cross with his wounds, and she was kissing the wounds on his feet with this incredible fervor and devotion and faith. And the agent made this, you know, snide remark to her. He said, Grandmother, I see you kissing this icon. Are you also prepared in the same way to kiss the feet of our beloved general secretary. In other words, are you ready to conform and compromise? And her answer was brilliant. She said, of course, of course I am, but only if you crucify him first. (laughs) That's faithfulness. Right? That's trusting in God's power, resting in God's freedom, and clinging to God's truth. That though you may be cast into the fire, it will never consume you, because it could not consume him. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please pray with me.